Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast on the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We have around 6,000 members worldwide and around 50 branches. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 3rd of April 2023 and this is episode 294. On today's Dispatches podcast, I talk to historian and author Professor John Bourne about his interest and research into the 46th Division on the Western Front during the Great War. John spoke to me from his home in the West Midlands. John, welcome back to the Dispatches podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in the Great War and in particular the 46th Division? Um, yeah, sure. Um, I didn't become really interested in the first world war till i was about 14 or 15 um when i was growing up it was all world war ii and by the time i was 10 years old i could give you a pretty good narrative account of the second world war um you didn't have to read anything i hadn't read anything um you were surrounded by everyone you knew had been in it in one form or another uh it was never off the telly um you got all those 1950s feature films like you know reach for the sky dambusters uh, dunkirk and so on uh, i was brought up on them and um the first war i got interested in reading about and did read about was actually the american civil war because in my school library at my grammar school they had a copy of the volume taken from churchill's history of the english-speaking peoples which is devoted to the american civil war it was published as a separate volume. And on the front is the famous photograph, George Armstrong Custer wearing the uniform of the Union, sitting next to a, a classmate from West Point who was wearing a Confederate uniform and who'd been captured um, in some battle or other. And this book was, uh, had all the famous photographs by Matthew Brady. And, you know, and it was also, apart from being brought up on Second World War films, I brought up on Westerns. My dad was a great Western fan. And, and a lot of them have a American Civil War motif through it. So I really didn't know anything about the First World War and it showed no interest in it, apart from the injunction, which stemmed ultimately from my maternal grandmother, Louisa Sheldon, that I, I must not wear a poppy. I was banned from wearing a poppy as a child. And uh, I love my grandmother. She died when I was three. I was three in the April and she died in the May. But I, I remember her vividly, vividly. And um, she was always very kind to me. So I took this injunction as, you know, the word of God. So I, and it was always getting me in trouble, particularly at primary school, because I wouldn't, you know, you've got a class of baby boomers and 50 kids, 49 of whom are wearing a poppy <laughs> and one who isn't. And um, so that was basically my entire knowledge of the First World War. And then one day in the, in the local library, which I used to infest on Saturday morning, I saw John Terrain's uh, biography of Douglas Haig, which is literally the first book I ever read on the First World War. And I read it because... In the old days, in the centre of a poppy, it used to say Earl Haig Fund, which my grandmother was convinced was a way of extorting money from poor people to give to rich people, which is ridiculous. Um, plus, also, I did know that my grandfather had never served under Haig's command because he was in, when, whenever he was talked about, he was always in Mesopotamia. It was only 
years later that I realized he was in Gallipoli before he got to Mesopotamia. Um, so I started reading this this book by Terrain and I was ex exceptionally impressed with it because virtually everybody I knew who knew anything about the First World War said the First World War was a disastrous mistake and Douglas Haig was an idiot. And this, to take a, a different view like this, which was clearly unpopular at the time, I remember reading A.J.P. Taylor's review of it, I think, in the Sunday Times, in which he said it was a whitewash. And I thought, well, I've read it, and I don't think it was. So then I started to get interested. Uh, and then, of course, it was the BBC, Great BBC, Great War series in 1964. So that really captured my imagination, as it did many people. Um, but I didn't know anything what you, about what you might call the local history of the Great War. I wasn't even sure there was one. Um, and one day I was uh, in Hanley, which is the main town in the city of Stoke-on-Trent, where the big, where the central library is, and they were having a book sale. I, was rem I remember it because they'd laid out the books they didn't want on trestle tables in the car park. Um, so I had a look round, and that was the first time I ever saw a copy of uh, Sir Raymond Priestley's Breaking the Hindenburg Line, the story of the 46th North Midland Division. I'd never heard of the 46th North Midland Division. I don't think I'd heard of the Hindenburg Line either. So I just had a look at the book. I didn't um, buy it. Um, so I'd be about, I don't know, 14, 15 at the time. Uh, although I read a lot from when I was very small, I didn't buy books. You know, you took them out of the library, read them, and took them back the following week. Um, it was only when I became an undergraduate I started buying books seriously, a habit I've still not got out of. Um, so I... I I didn't buy the book, but it stuck in my mind for various reasons. And then it would have been, I'm pretty sure it would have been 1965, on the occasion of the 50th anniversary of the attack on the um, Hohenzollern Redoubt, 13th of October 1915. There was an article, and I'm pretty sure it was in the local paper, though I've never managed to find it since, uh, about the attack on the Hohenzollern Redoubt and how it had... Uh, the phrase stuck in my mind that, you know, how many men were killed in the time it took to boil a kettle. It was quite a vivid phrase. So having been alerted to the fact that uh, there was this attack and it had a, a really shocking effect in North Staffordshire, it was North Staffordshire's 1st of July 1916. So we got we got our disaster in early and I hadn't I didn't know anything about this at all. So I thought, OK. There was that book on the 46th Division. I'll see if I can find a copy. Um, and I did find one in the reference library in Hanley, the wonderful Horace Barks reference library. Horace Barks was a veteran of the First World War, a sapper, uh, became a pacifist post-war. He was a leading figure in Britain in um, the Esperanto movement. And that part of... Um, the north of the city of Stoke-on-Trent, for which he was the uh, councillor, uh, still retains echoes of his interest in Esperantoism. For instance, the local pub is called La Verde Stello, the Green Star. And the road, one of the road next to it is named after the founder of uh, Esperanto. He was a good man, Horace Box. He was Lord Mayor of the city of Stoke-on-Trent after the Second World War. And he was also, more importantly, I think, chairman of the Education Committee. So I do feel he had some influence on my you know, the early education. So I thought, so I, I'll go into the Horace Barks reference library, which I, I, I'd also taken to haunting on Saturday mornings. 
And I found it in there, found a copy in there and read it. And it was a real eye-opener for all sorts of reasons. First of all, there were people in it I recognised, chief of whom were... It's the first time I ever remember seeing an order of battle, because at the back of that book, there is a quite a detailed order of battle um, for 1915. And again, when they attacked the um, Hindenburg Line in um, September 1918. And I looked at this and it was fascinating to me. Uh, I'd never seen one before. And I looked at it. I started to recognise a few names. One of them was George Wade. He was a machine gun officer of 46 North Midland Division. And he was the um, then boss of the well-known uh, pottery firm of Wade's. Uh, I suppose they're most well-known uh, for these things called Wade's Whimsies. You know, the sort of amusing little models. But my, my Aunt Maud, who was a formidable woman, um, she worked for Wade's um, in Burslem, but that wasn't the whimsy. She worked in the factory that made electrical conductors, and she was a fettler, and that's people who rubbed the rough edges off pottery after they'd been cast. And it suited her, really, because she was a fettler in life. You know, she if there was any rough edges anywhere, you could, <laughs> you could depend upon Maud to, <laughs> to knock them off. And as a small boy, they they didn't have, you know, uh, health and safety in those days. And any small child could wander into a factory and wander around looking for his aunt. But I used to go up there with my mother. And uh, I, I, remember, I remember it as clear as day. I was introduced to Sir George Wade. He was then quite, you know, an elderly chap with a fine moustache. And uh, he patted me on the head and he said, what a splendid little child. I thought, well, I realised over the years what a man of good judgment he was, you know, so... I recognised that name. I thought, blimey, Sir George Wade, MC. So I thought, okay. Um, the other name that stands out from is Bill Coltman, uh, VC, DCM and Bar, MMM, whose photograph is pinned to the uh, bookshelf above my desk. I'm looking at the moment. And um, he was one of the most decorated other ranks uh, of the First World War, a stretcher bearer, gardener from Burton-on-Trent, who... Um, when he joined the army, um, went to see his commanding officer and said, uh, it's against my Christian principles to take human life, which sort of begged the question. I've never I've never resolved as to why Bill Coltman joined the army in the first place. Um, and his commanding officer said, very well, Coltman, you could be a stretcher bearer. So that's where he won all these medals for, you know, re rescuing who were wounded and bringing them back. Um and when his commanding officer died, about 1955, I think it was, he left Bill Coltman £25 in his will. I thought that was a bigger tribute than even winning the Victoria Cross, you know. So I thought, well, for the first time in seeing and learning about Bill Coltman, I realised that the First World War had heroes, because up to that point it didn't. It only had victims. And you had, you, you had endless heroes of the Second World I was brought up on. But nobody had ever said, well, you know, the heroes of the First World War. And I thought, well, this guy, by any by any standard, was a, you know, was a hero. That also introduced me to the um, to the territorials, of course, which about which I knew absolutely nothing. And I learned a bit more about it. Like the the, the uh, 46th Division was the first territorial division to be deployed to France as a complete unit or formation. As you well know, there were. Um, territorial regiments which were sent out there as early as 1914 but um, March, February, March 1915 the 46th Division is the first division territorial division to be deployed 
France uh, as, a, as a complete formation. And apart from a curious hiatus, when it looked as though it was going to be sent to Egypt, um, and it, most of the division got as far as Marseille, some of the division got as far as Alexandria that then was brought back again. It spent the rest of the war on the Western Front. So you have a slice, you know, in miniature um, of the experience of the BEF through this one division. So I, uh, this made me aware of it. Um, and I used to deduce various things from it. One of the things, as I learned a bit more about the First World War, and you look through that order of battle at the end, is the number of platoon commanders in 1918 who were not even officers. Now, that struck me as being significant. Um, I'm not sure what the significance was, but I thought it must be significant because this is unusual. You know, it's not what you'd expect. Platoon commanders are officers. Um, and various bits of it stick around in my mind. And it kept coming back to me for all sorts of reasons, and in a sense, unconnected with the First World War. For example, Sir Raymond Priestley later became Vice-Chancellor and Principal of the University of Birmingham, where I spent 30 years of my career. Uh, he was a sort of geologist, I think, uh, by training, and he'd been to Antarctica with Ernest Shackleton. And one of my colleagues in the history department at Birmingham was Richard Shackleton, who was Ernest Shackleton's grandson, and looked incredibly like um, Ernest Shackleton, and like Ernest Shackleton, died young in his, his 50, uh, he was only 46, I think, Richard, when he died. And um, so you, I kept getting these echoes all the time. And one of the VC winners that's in uh, Priestley's book, um, which I um, had noted, was a chap called John Cridland Barrett of the Leicesters. And I happened to be talking to my then, I think, supervisor, Professor Jack Simmons, University of Leicester, and I mentioned Barrett, and he said, oh, he lives around the corner from you. Um, Barrett joined the army um, when he was a medical student. So he went from being a medical student to being an infantry officer in the First World War. Uh, and after the war, he went back to his medical training, and, and he became a, a surgeon at Leicester Royal Infirmary. And he did almost literally live around the country. So um, I got myself invited to tea. Um, and he's still the only VC winner I've got really close to. Um, he's not the only one I've shaken hands with. There was two of them, but the other one was second world. And uh, the curious thing is, Tom, for someone who has such a good memory as me, I can't remember anything about the meeting at all. I don't know what I asked him about. I don't know what he said. Perhaps I was too much in awe, you know. Um, perhaps I, I just didn't know enough. I hadn't specialised in the First World War at that point. I was quite a long way off specialised. So... It's always been lying around in, in the back of my mind. Um, but recently, um, I thought I ought to do some actual work on it as opposed to being interested in it. And that's what I've been doing. And, and one of the things that's driven my research in the last few years is uh, multibiography, or as they like to say in posh circles, prosopography. When you look at an institution, an organisation, and the people who work for it, you know, so you don't just look at, you know, five army commanders or, you know, 50 divisional command, whatever. You look at the lot. Now, I, I suppose I'm reasonably well known for looking at the generals, all of them, all 1,250 generals who served in the BEF on the Western Front in the First World War, which is quite a lot of people. But I was talking last year with Jonathan Boff, 
about what Jonathan calls drilling down. And I said, well, if you really want to understand how the BEF evolved during the First World War, um, you've got to look at the people who are actually delivering the changes. There's been a lot of talk about the famous learning curve, um, invent, you know, discovered by Peter Simpkins, but you know, then, then it took on a, a sort of rigidity that Pete never intended it to have. Um, but things changed over time. Uh, I mean, one of the things I realised when I started doing serious work on the First World War is that AJP Taylor's famous phrase that the only thing the British Army learned in the First World War was how to repeat its mistakes on an ever bigger scale was nonsensical. And what you have, to use a, a modern trendy um, expression, it was a learning organisation. It attempted to learn uh, individually and collectively, institutionally, from what went right and what went wrong and to adapt over time. And anyone who looks at the British Army towards the end of 1918, it's absolutely nothing like the British Army of 1916, much less the Army of 1914. But you can see this in terms of um, top-down. You know, it's handed down from the great Hegians who worked it all out and then pass it down the chain of command. And that struck me as not being right. But we know comparatively little about the people at the sharp end who are actually charged with you know, implementing the new tactical doctrine or whatever, or carrying the war um, to the enemy, uh, which they continue to do um, right until the end. And Jonathan said he thought that was a council of despair because you can't, you know, there's too many chaps <laughs> to drill right down. And I thought, OK, well, you'll have to take something smaller and, and look at who's responsible for it. So I thought, naturally thought, I'll look at the 46th Division. And there's two things I'm working on at the moment, both of which will end up as articles for the WFA website. One is on the 46th Division's um, battalion commanders during the war and how they evolved over time. And the second one, and this goes right back to my original site of the Order of Battle in Priestley's book, is to look at all the platoon commanders of the 46th Division at the 29th of September, 1918. As Priestley lists them all, I, I then realised, I love spreadsheets, me. I think the spreadsheet is one of the great inventions of all time i think mr excel is a great man um so whenever i and I th i've always believed that one of the fundamental principles of historical research is make a list and the thing to do is make a list on a spreadsheet because then you can start manipulating so i put all these chaps on on my spreadsheet and then started to investigate them which of course is much easier now with the magic of of the internet and ancestry and so on and um, that began to realize that in fact Priestley had made some mistakes because some of the people he lists as being um, platoon commanders on 29th September were actually killed three days earlier when the Germans had a, a kind of preemptive attack. And it's in that attack that John Criddle and Barrett won the VC. So uh, I then realised he hadn't got it quite right. So then started working my way through all the all the war diaries, uh, all the published histories. Um and one of the things I wanted to do was, is to have a kind of check to see if there's any difference between the platoon commanders at the end of the war and the platoon commanders at the beginning. So I didn't want to investigate all the platoon commanders of the 46th Division of 1915 or 1914. Uh, but happily, um, a school friend of mine, Lev Wood, 
and his wife, Janice, as their contribution to the centenary of the Great War, and some friends of his in the uh, Staffordshire Moorlands, decided to do a history of the 1st, 5th North Staffords, which is one of the uh, battalions in uh, the 137th Staffordshire Brigade. And they did a fantastic job. They, they've done it, compiled a, a history. Um, but Janice also did, wait for it, a spreadsheet. And the spreadsheet contained almost 6,000 names of everyone that she and Lev have been able to identify as having served in the 1st, 5th North Staffords during the First World War. So what I did was then to extract the platoon commanders of 1st, 5th North Staffords as my control and to have a look at them in 1915 on the eve of the Hohenzollern Redoubt and compare them with the platoon commanders of um, 1918. And the first thing that, you know, some headline figures strike you, don't they, or headline comparisons. One of the platoon commanders um, was a chap who was, I think in modern terms, a millionaire in 1915. And he was killed on the 1st of July 1916. He wasn't killed in the attack, famous attack at Gomcourt. He was actually behind a line and he was helping a man who later wrote his memoirs, a man called Thomas Higgins, um, carry some barbed wire up to the front. And he said, uh, would you like a hand with that, Higgins? Um, and um, the shell exploded and he got killed by a you know classic way by a shell fragment. And his money was from mining. He was a coal owner, so he owned the coal under you know under the ground. And um, in particular, he, he owned the Park Hall Colliery at Cheadle in the Staffordshire Moorlands. And his address was Caverswall Castle, Staffordshire. So he didn't live in a modest miner's terrace cottage. That's the, it's still there, it's a Gothic thing. And um, so I then started, I looked at the platoon commanders of 1916, uh, 1918, and there is a platoon commander, I think, in the Leicesters, whose father was a coal miner. So you've gone from platoon commanders who were, by modern standards, when he died, he left these 30, think, when he died, this chap, he left £137,000. That's a lot of money. You know, by by our standards, that'd make him a millionaire. Um, and the son of a, a well-known figure in the history of coal mining in North Staffordshire. And this chap is a son of a coal miner. Now, that is a hell of a an evolution socially. And one of the things that's always bugged me about the way the First World War is portrayed, particularly drama, is it, it, it seems to be trapped in this sort of public school idiom. You know, that all the officers are public school boys and they all have little moustaches, you know. And um, it's like that throughout the war. And I'm not knocking public school boys. I mean, they led from the front. You know, they. you only have to look at the roles of honour of public schools to see that they certainly didn't lack courage. And a lot of them were very able. Um, but we ran out of them, basically. And so by the end of the war, you know, you've got people coming from... Um, into those positions and responsible for delivering, you know, evolved tactics of 1918, who weren't what I would call officer class. Even if they weren't working class, they weren't officer class, you know. Um, I did a piece on um, Tolkien a while back. He was in Lancashire Fusiliers. 
And the problem with Tolkien is that people, there are people who understand Tolkien and people who understand the First World War. The trouble is they're not the same people. And some of the stuff that's written on the First World War by people who, you know, write about Tolkien is just beyond gibberish. But um, some you know, people were saying, oh, well, you know, poor old Tolkien, you know, he was this, he was this poor sort of chap, you know, who went to grammar school um, and he didn't fit in with all these sort of public school knobs who were very well off, you know. Well, one of his brother officers in, in this battalion was in peacetime, um, uh, a women's lingerie salesman. <laughs> so, I don't think that is a normal kind of, you know, officer background. And they weren't at all like they are portrayed, you know, as being kind of old imperial hands always going on about chota pegs in India and whatnot. Um, they came from the lower middle class, There's a lot of lower middle class officers in that battalion at the time that Priestley, uh, that uh, Tolkien served in it. So, and I don't think that's ever really come over the way that the officer corps itself evolved socially. Um, and it's it seems as you know it's a shame. It ought to be better understood than it is. So that's that's my main kind of interest in it at the moment. But it is a good vehicle for doing this, I think. Right. Let's get on to the forty sixth division. So, can you tell us about its origins, its purpose, and how it has been regarded by historians over time? <clears throat> Well, it was one of the um, divisions that was formed um, in the aftermath of the creation of the Territorial Army in, in 1908. And like all the other um, territorial divisions, of which there, I think there were 14, um, it was intended for home defence. Um, but as, as we know, uh, they were all converted into um, being available for overseas service uh, once the war broke out. So what was intent? One of the things I noticed in doing this work on, you know, who the officers were at the beginning of the war, is there was a huge turnover between the officers who went to the pre-outbreak of war camp. As you well know, a lot of the territorial army was at its annual camp just before the outbreak of. In the case of the forty-sixth division, it was in North Wales near St Asaph, and. Um, in his history of the first fifth North Staffordshire, um, Lieutenant Meakin listed all the officers who attended that camp. These were not the officers who went to war with the division in 1915. So a lot of them fell by the wayside, either because the commanding officer, Colonel Knight, had got rid of them because he didn't, he didn't think they were up to it, or they had health reasons, or they had businesses to attend to. And the majority of the officers who were in that battalion in 1915, when it went to war, were what I call war territorials as opposed to pre-war territorials. So the the bulk of the officers were people who joined the territorial force after the outbreak of war. That was a surprise to me. I, I wasn't expecting that. Um, so that's that. That's what these territorial um, divisions were for. Um, there was a considerable degree of scepticism towards them from regular officers, as I'm sure you know, not least Kitchener, uh, who seemed to confuse the, the concept of territorial in England with his concept of territorials in France, uh, when Kitchener quite illegally served in the Franco-Prussian War. And he thought the French territorials, he got really nothing in common with British territorials, uh, weren't very good. Um, so there's a Right throughout the war, I think there is a a feeling that the 
territorial divisions cannot be trusted in the same way that you could trust regular or even new army divisions. That doesn't mean that there weren't some territorial divisions which acquired either um, elite status. I mean, I'd say probably, you know, the 56th London Division, um, arguably the 51st Highland Division. Well, I've never been entirely convinced by the 51st Highland Division's reputation. Um Maybe maybe some others, but the, again, there were others that were, had a very low reputation, 42nd East Lancashire Division, uh, which was originally in Gallipoli. Um, and in the case of the 46th Division, until it achieves fame uh, on the 29th of September 1918, it was widely regarded as being not very good. This is because uh, it got absolutely shattered uh, during the attack on the Hohenzollern Redoubt on the 13th of October 1915, which is the fag end of the, the Battle of Luz, it was a completely, as far as I can make out, it was a completely unnecessary attack. No body of soldiers ever born or made uh, would have successfully completed it. Um, I remember reading in the um, official history, which has a reputation for being a bit soulless, um, that the only thing that the attack on the Hohenzollern Redoubt achieved was a tragic slaughter of infantry which doesn't strike me as being a soulless expression and after that um i mean it took the division months really to recover and then of course it gets its second disaster which is the attack on goncourt that's a disaster for two reasons uh one again they suffered high casualties though their casualties were a lot less than the sister division that attacked 56 London Division, and the 56 London Division achieved its ends, the 46 North Midland Division didn't. It then got a reputation for being, I suppose, windy or sticky. And it had the honour, if such it is, uh, of having its commanding officer, Major General E.J. Montague Stuart Wortley, sacked. He was the first general to be sacked on the Somme. And there are people who still defend Montague Stuart Worley. There was an article not long ago in the um, one of the Western Front Association journals. I can't remember which one it was. Um, and there's no doubt, I, I think, that he that he was scapegoated because the fundamental rule, you know, of institutional survival is you dump on the bloke below before the bloke above you dumps on you. And um, I'm pretty sure, uh, you know, Snow, who was the corps commander, Seven Corps. Uh, had dumped on Montague Stuart Wortley. But this idea that Montague Stuart Wortley was a marked man uh, because he kept up a correspondence with the king, which didn't go down well with you know senior officers. Well, he wasn't the only one who kept up correspondence with the king. Lots of officers did. Uh, king George V took a great interest pre-war in the territorials, and it's one of the reasons why they... Um, became as established as they did. I think his role in it was significant and important. Um, so, I, I, you know, this idea that, you know, Douglas Haig was sitting there twitching, just waiting for Antiquity Stuart Worley to make a mistake so he could sack him, um, I don't buy that. I don't think Montague Stuart Worley was a particularly good... He was old. I didn't visit his front line very much. The people within the division didn't rate him particularly highly. Um, and although I don't think he was responsible for the failings of Gomcor, the, the point about Gomcor is it should never have happened. Um, I did know an officer of the 46th Division, 
who was at Goncourt, who was the uh, sixth Earl of Harrowby, um, who at that time was Major of the Viscount Sandon, and he was in the um, North Midland Field Brigade. And he said it couldn't have been more obvious. You know, they were ta- they were told to make it obvious. This was a diversion. You want to say to the Germans, look, Brits, we're attacking here. Uh, let, let's make it obvious so that they would move reserves away from the area where Haig thought the breakthrough would be, which is much further to the south. Um, and he said they, you know, they made it as, as obvious as possible. Um, I did know two or three veterans of the 46th Division, one of whom actually lived three houses up from me. Um, and they all felt that they'd failed at Gumcourt. And I took one of them when he was a very old man, and, and I read out Haig's uh, statement that he was well satisfied with the attack because it had achieved its purpose, which was to divert German reserves from elsewhere on the battlefield, though not necessarily from where Haig wanted them diverted. And he was astonished because he'd always thought that they'd absolutely failed. Not only they'd failed, but they'd let down the 56th Division. And from that moment, really, um, 46th Division is in sort of in detention, you know, for the rest, almost for the rest of the war. Um, They became known as the goalkeepers because they were always standing on the line. Um, They weren't really charged with anything very significant, maybe a little bit in 1917 around Hill 60. Um, they played virtually no part in the German Spring Offensives or the defence against the German Spring Offensives. And, and, and it's only when they're charged with what looks like another kind of suicidal challenge of crossing the San Quentin Canal at, at Bell and Glees on the 29th of September 1918. And you think, well, you know, they're just not a lucky division. You know, they're given the Hohenzollern Redoubt, which is a stupid attack. They're given Gomkor, which should never have been an attack at all. And now they're given this one which what looks like really strong German defences, apart from the canal itself, you know, and endless rows of barbed wire and machine gun positions and so on. And they succeed magnificently. Uh, you And originally, you know, all the men in life belts filch from channel steamers, you know, crossing uh, where the water in the canal was deep. And um, it's an absolute triumph, Um it was expected that the triumph would come further north of the Australians and Americans. It didn't. And this highly average, unregarded, uh, middle English territorial division is the one that triumphs. So since then, um, 46 divisions reputation has gone up. And it's gone up in the sense that it reflects what many people see as the improvement in the operational and tactical method of the BEF across the course of the war. I do feel a bit sorry for its long-serving commanding officer, William Thwaites, who was appointed after Montague Stewart Worley was sacked. And Thwaites was replaced shortly before the attack on the um, San Quentin Canal. He wasn't sacked. He became Director of Military Intelligence at the War Office uh, in succession to George McDonough, who'd moved up to be Adjutant General. Uh, He spoke fluent German, Thwaites. And um, he went off to London to the war office, so they had to find someone else. And the person they found was Jerry Boyd. Um, one of the things I've been trying to understand for years is how officers are actually appointed. And I've got a kind of vague idea of how the system worked. But I said to me, I said to myself, what you need to do is find out how and why Jerry Boyd was appointed to take 4060. Well, he began the war as the brigade major 
in the brigade commanded by Aylmer Hunter Weston in the BEF, which was not necessarily a very auspicious start. He's quite badly wounded. And shortly before he's appointed to command the 46th Division, he's commanded a second line territorial brigade near Ypres. So his name obviously came out of the hat. Um, it's a bit complicated because they also changed the corps commander at the same time. Uh, the corps commander was um, Alexander Hamilton Gordon, Sonny Jim, uh, and he is replaced by an, a, a retread, uh, which is uh, Walter Braithwaite, who was the despised chief of staff to Ian Hamilton at Gallipoli, but was a very good corps commander, it's a nine corps, in, in the last um, few weeks of the war. And um, so this new team... Um, of Braithwaite and uh, Boyd um, take the 46th Division to its greatest triumph. People who wrote memoirs um, of the division at that time all testify to the very positive impact that Jerry Boyd had made. And so it, it wasn't that he was just jammy. You know, he'd inherited um, a fine weapon, which I think he had. As Priestley says at the start of his book that when Thwaites left, um, he said the division was as hard as nails and fit for anything. Uh, but all the people who um, commented on the impact of Jerry Boyd's taking over the division stress that he may well indeed have inherited a fine instrument of war, but he damn well knew how to use it and did. And I, I don't think there's any doubt. I mean, he's only, he's quite a young man. I think he's only 40 uh, in, in 1918. He was a guy who I think would have gone far, but he, he died young in the 1920s when he was military secretary. Um, again, someone, I never quite worked out Boyd's background. He had a brother who was a senior civil servant in the Home Office, but having failed to get into Sandhurst, he joined the army as a private soldier and um, won the DCM in South Africa and then followed that route. You know, he didn't have any real uh, regimental heft behind him you know he, he keeps changing his regiment as he moves up a, a grade so definitely a meritocrat uh, and an able man and the word is grossly overused but i think he comes over as charismatic you know to the junior people below him and and they they knew there'd been a change at the top as it when boy took over so since then uh, it, it's kind of gone up in the world it's almost become fashionable what he thinks division which it certainly wasn't when I first took an interest in it. Everybody thought it was a load of rubbish. What's the raiding record of the 46th Division? Is there an, is there an increase in the effectiveness of in raids from 1617-18? No, I've never looked at that. Um, I'll need, uh, it's a good idea. Perhaps I should. Not that I'm aware of. Um, no, I, I, I need to read that up. I, I can't give you an honest answer to that. Um, Thwaites was very much kind of old army, you know, he believed in discipline and smartness. And, um, but whether he was an aggressive soldier in that sense, you know, who believed the 46th Division should dominate no man's land, you don't get that impression that that's what he was doing, you know, in the period between Gomcourt and, and Bell and Glees, holding the line rather than dominating it, I would have said. But I may be wrong. No, because I... I've looked at the raiding performance of the 56th Division from 1617-18 and using a metric of capturing a prisoner uh, and coming back, 
they appear to be significantly more effective in 18 than they are in the previous two years. And I'm using that as a proxy, as a measurement of skill. Now, obviously, there are many yeah. problems with that. But, it, you know, when you look at the rate in detail, they achieve surprise. They go around the back of them. They, um, you know, they do sneaky things. And they, they and all these operations are much more complex and bigger, suggesting that the Army skill, certainly at raiding, is improving. Now, I've, this is the metrics work quite well for the 56th division. Now, whether they can be applied to the 46th division, other units, I don't know. But it's a really interesting proxy of skill because that yeah. makes the learning curve work. Well, that's another article for me. Thanks. Yeah. Well, <laughs> metrics sounds like a spreadsheet to me. So that should be good. But uh, yeah, I, I, I just thought that because I, I looked at the 6th division and 6th division in 17 are really effective. In 18, they don't do anything. They have a very, very low metric because they list every single raid they do and what happened. This is really interesting. And so against the 56th division, it seems to be on a, on a transitory move upwards. And that becomes a really interesting proxy for skills. You know, they do they achieve surprise. They um, get back in one piece. You know, if you look at the number of casualties they take versus they give, it's roughly equal. I mean, however, even if you accept the body counts as as, as unreliable yeah. as they are, but it's a really interesting idea that you know they it is a way of demonstrating skill in a in a containable way where obviously a battle um, is very difficult because everything's so complex. But I thought this was quite useful. I mean, it has its limitations without without doubt, but it's the only th only way I can think about measuring skill on a comparable level between units. Yeah. So I mean, th there is a debate and division about the, the efficacy of raiding and raiding policy. I mean, I remember James Jack's diary, which is one of the, the finest on the First World War, I think. He hated raids. And it was always appalled in his book, you know, if if you didn't kind of practice these skills, they were never going to get any better. Um, and that was the way to do it. Plus, of course, you know, uh, the thing you get in um, the Royal Welsh Fusiliers, um, Captain Dunn, um, they were insistent on, you know, dominating no man's land, and they felt it was safer to dominate no man's land because if you followed a policy that was passive, um, then you were more likely to get clobbered by the enemy than if you were followed an active policy. But against that, you've got, you know, sections of the French army who deliberately followed a, a passive policy, you know. Um, and then there's all that stuff which I was never entirely convinced by, you know, Tony Ashworth's work on live and let live. Um, the, there was ritualised violence, you know, you, you'd shell the enemy, but you'd do it at one o'clock every day so they know to keep their heads down. Um, I've never been entirely convinced by that because w one thing is clear from the work I've been doing recently on the 46th Division, um, and it comes over, for example, in, in Peter Hodgkinson's work on 6th Division and also his work on... Uh, infantry battalion commanders is that there's a there's no slackening of the will to win in the army um i remember when i first started teaching the first world war at university a student one thing students all know about the first world war and how ignorant they are is they know it quote finished on the 11th of november 1918 so they presume that because it finished on the 11th of November 1918. Everyone must have known it was going to finish. And therefore, the war was somehow winding down, you know, like two teams playing out the last 10 minutes for, you know, preserve the not, not, not draw. And it wasn't like that at all. I mean, uh, these battles for, of the 100 days, are some of the most intensive, um, high tempo, 
um, battles ever fought by the British Army, and we'll never fight any battles like them ever again. Um, but it's clear that you know the the average soldier was not sitting in, a, in his front line trench reading Wilfred Owen, and you know waiting for the war to glide peacefully towards its conclusion. Um, they were taking the war to the enemy uh, all the time, and I, I, th there is di a difference about the tempo of the war in this period. And this is very clear from the history of Forty Six Division. Is that um, for, for stretches of the First World War, um, battalions got a lot of rest. You know, they'd have an attack, they'd do well or do badly, then they'd be pulled out of the line, you know, often for quite considerable amounts of time. But it's not like that in 100 days. It's, you know, you've had one attack, successful, then you have another attack to keep it going. It's more like 1944 than other aspects of the, the First World War. In fact, I used to play this trick. Uh, I used to look at... Um, VC citations for the 100 days. And I sometimes read them out to students and say, uh, which year of British military history of the 20th century do you think this VC citation refers to? And people tended to go for 1944 because he didn't have any of the buzzwords in that you'd expect from the First World War. There's no mention of no man's land. There's no mention of barbed wire. There's no mention of trenches. But there's lots of mentions of machine gun posts um, and pillboxes. Um, and it was that kind of war. And there were not only did the tempo not cease, it arguably it quickened. And the the challenge to um, the infantry was often a different one, different days, you know. There'd be urban fighting, there'd be crossing ditches, canals, um, fighting your way around various other woods, that kind of, you know. And, and it, you're having to to keep the tempo. You you couldn't sort of sit down and wait for GHQ to send you the you know the the memo about how to get round a wood. You know you, you did it, and it was done by the blokes at the sharp end. I've always been very struck by Field Marshal Wavell's opinion that the First World War was a platoon commander's war, which is why I'm interested in platoon commanders, who they were at the end of the war, what motivated them, what where they came from, how old were they. What was their social and educational backgrounds, um, and so on? And I think you know that really does need looking at. So, and I'm looking at it. Have you done any work on the attrition rate in the 46th Division? How many officers did they get through? Because I've I've done I did a study of the Second Battalion Royal Irish Rifles, looking at the number yeah. of officers that, that that go through the unit as a from 14 to 18, and for for the Second RI, it's about 326. And for the 5th Chessers, it's about 140. The London Rifle Brigade, it's around 250. So, you know, it's getting that. And then the impact of that churn on the social structure of the unit, you know, yes. their, their social class, their educational background, their uh, Irishness in the, in, the, in the case of the 2nd yeah. Royal Irish Rifles. And it's interesting how you see the change in the social class in, those, in, in the Royal Irish Rifles remains largely publicly school educated um tier one upper middle class which i found very interesting and that sounds very counter to what you've experienced in the first yeah. fifth um yeah. staffs well i i think there's definitely a difference uh between regular army officers pre-war and officers of the territorial force pre-war and at the start of the war they do not come from similar backgrounds um for, I mean, if you, if you, there's been a lot of work done on the late Victorian Edwardian British Army Officer Corps, and they tend to come from rural backgrounds, 
they tend to be disproportionately the sons of military families of the church, of the man, specifically the established church, Presbyterian Church in Scotland, Church of England in, in England. Um, and this is in a, the most urbanised country there's ever been in the history of the world up to that point. So their soldiers mostly come from the urban working class, but the, the officers don't. They don't come from the, the kind of background that's driven um, British economic success. But the territorials do. I mean, if you look at the territory, the, the officers of the 1st, 5th North Staffords come from the commercial um, elite, particularly of the pottery industry, you know, it dominates North Staffordshire at that time, but also from, from coal mining, to some extent, steel. These are people whose backgrounds uh, are commercial, industrial, engineering. This is not like the, the backgrounds of regular army officers. So although they may have been well off, and in some cases <laughs> extremely well off, much more well off than the average regular army, um, their social background is different. I think they're also much closer to their men because these blokes who joined the territory, these are their workers, essentially. Um, I mean, the memorial to Park Hall Colliery, um, I think it has 23 dead on, one of whom is this millionaire chap, um, and, and 22 miners. Um, so they would have known one another in in um, working life. But there's also, a, a, I think, a, an overlap between working life and play. Because a lot of these um, territorial army officers, they're well-known local sportsmen. You know, they play cricket, especially um, rugby to some extent. The North Staffish is not a rugby area. Um, so, you know, th these would have been well-known figures um, and, you know, they were involved in other things like, you know, music and so on. They, this is not, they're not the same. I'm not saying they, they're not, it's a different type of elite from the regular army elite. And I think the regular army is, is, is aware of this. You know, there's, there's always been tensions between the regular army officers and the territorials. <laughs> you know, I, I know plenty of people who are in the territorials who tell me this all the time. Um, so I think I think there's a difference. You can work out the attrition rate, and you could do it from Lev Woods and Janice Woods spreadsheet because they've got every single officer on there, uh, and they highlight it. I, I could probably do it quite easily and let you know, you know, how many of them were actually killed. Um, but the other thing I've been working on recently is the East Yorkshire Regiment's regular officers of August 1914. I won't bore you with why I've done this, but I've nearly finished it. And I wanted to look at what happened to their regular officers of the two regular battalions, first and second, during the war. And the obvious thing that happened to them is, is a colossal number of them got killed in 1914 and 1915. And that's another reason there's a churn, because you haven't got a large number of regular officers to start with. And if you're looking at the infantry, artillery and cavalry, it's under 13,000 regular officers on the active list in August 1914. And a prodigious number of these got killed including people who've got PSC, you know, you don't really want to get killed in the first battle of the war. And, um, you know, the, the the attrition rate there is extraordinary. But the person who started this project years ago, it's lack enough when he, he died young, was he said, well, you know, we'd expect there'd be what maybe one or two stars who'd make it big, you know, maybe there weren't actually any of these East Yorkshire regiments. If you look at the two regiments either side of the army list, there are. I mean, West Yorkshire, I think, got about four divisional. Bedford's, which is the other side, I think they've got at least two. 
divisional. Nothing like that in East Yorks. Um, and Pete, Pete was expecting that, you know, lots of people would get killed, which is obvious they did. Um, but the other thing is, he said, well, what do you do about these guys? The guy's a major, a regular major in 1914, and he's a regular major in 1918. So the impact of the war on him is, you know, what you might, might call carbon neutral. You know, it doesn't have any effect. He doesn't go up. He doesn't go down. He doesn't get killed. He just stays at the same level, you know, because not all regular army officers, you know, were warriors waiting for their opportunity. Not everybody joined the regular army. You know, to be a warrior, there's all sorts of reasons why they joined. And then there were other people who would never have joined the army, but for the First World War, who turned out to be warriors. Um, I met a guy, I was giving a lecture in New York earlier in the year, who'd written a book on the first fifth Lincolns, a chap called Steve Bramley. And he wrote it with a friend of his, whose name is Bailey, I think. And um, there were officers there who came up through the ranks. Um, who were absolute warriors. And they were, you know, one of them was, I think, a railway signalman before the war. Skilled job, well-paid, uh, responsible, um, much desired by working-class people because of the regularity of employment that you got from the great railway companies at that time. So he joins he joins the Territorials. And this guy's a complete, he's a complete warrior, you know. He has, I think he got three DCMs and uh, Conrad Leadbeater, isn't it? And um, he ends up fighting in southern Russia at the end of the war. And uh, he was, you know, absolutely admired by the chaps. And when he died, they collected together to buy his medals back. Um, well, that is not always the case with warriors. I mean, sometimes the chaps don't like warriors, particularly the ones who they think are gong hunting. Um so you don't know what the impact will be. Just because a man is a regular soldier doesn't mean he's going to be, you know, turn out to be an absolute military leader and warrior. But, you know, you can get the odd bank clerk um, who does turn out that way. <laughs> and I don't think you can ever know, really. I mean, how what somebody said that only war itself discovers or reveals the qualities that war needs. So you can sometimes look at a person and think, well, they've these got these have got all the sort of qualities that you think you'd want in a successful soldier. Who turn out not to be successful soldiers, and other people you would never think of as being successful soldiers turn out to be successful soldiers. It is a bit random, I think. That draws me onto my final questions. Where can people find out more about the Forty Sixth Division? Right, um, there is a, a modern-ish now. I can't remember. Fairly recent. And the uh, Helion series uh, on 46th Division by Simon People. There is the companion volume to the book on 56th Division at Gomcourt by the chap whose name isn't what he says it is. I never remember. Is that Alan McFarlane? Alan McDonald, um, isn't it? But, yeah, which is not actually his real name. Um, but he did a companion piece on the 46th Division at, um, at Gomcourt. Um, and I mean, his books are wonderfully researched, incredible detail, and th that's the best. I think the best account of 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 Goncourt. Um, if you can get a copy of Priestley's Breaking the Hindenburg Line, which I think has been reprinted by the uh, Naval Military Press, uh, then do so because it's it's it is a it is a wonderful read. Um, Priestley wrote a book on the city. He was a signals officer of the 46th North Midland Division. He wrote a book on the, the signal service during the First World War, which was without doubt the most boring book ever written. 
not the most boring book on the First World War or the most boring book on the Civil on the Signal series, but the most boring book ever written. I mean, it's totally dense and unreadable. Uh, I'm one of only three people who's ever gotten all the way through it, I think. But it's not like this. The break in the Hindenburg line is well written and it tells a very interesting story and it highlights where appropriate the contribution of certain heroic individuals. I mean, apart from uh, Bill Coltman and um, John Criddle and Barrett, um, the other famous VC of the division is Bernard Van, um, the fighting parson, the man who wanted to be a chaplain when the war broke out, but there was no place for him. So he said, oh, well, blow. I'll join as an infantryman, which he did in the ranks. And he, um, there's, there's a man, what do you think, you know, this, this clergyman who really wanted to be a chaplain was going to turn out to be the warrior he was. And he was undoubtedly an extraordinary warrior. But, um, it's, but for the rest of my, my, my current work, eventually, I think will bear fruit on the um, Western Front Association website. I think I've now written 10 articles for them. This East Yorkshire one will be the 11th. So that will be the, I've got three in the pipeline, two on the 46th Division and one on the Military Secretary's Office and how it worked or didn't work or might have worked, or we think it worked <laughs> during the First World War. Watch this space. Indeed, that might be something to revisit in due course. John, thank you very much for your time. Cheers, Tom. Thanks a lot. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman, and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth, performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time...